Hi, I'm Lewis and welcome to Searching For It. In the spirit of the philosopher we're going to be looking at today, I want to begin this episode by just thinking for a moment about what it actually means to desire something. What does it actually feel like? You know, it's something we do every day, if not almost every second of every day. We all know the feeling pretty well. But in actual fact, there's a lot of philosophical baggage hiding behind this question. So, right, imagine you're walking back home from work through the city. You haven't got any food in and you walk past your favourite Chinese restaurant. And man, it's been a long day and there's nothing you'd like better than ordering a takeaway, bringing it home and putting your feet up to watch some trash TV. But when you think about this, don't think about the object of your desire. Don't think about the Chinese takeaway itself. Think about the desire at the heart of it. The feeling inside, the feeling that longs for something, whether it's directed at a Chinese takeaway, a holiday to Hawaii or whatever. Just what does it feel like to want something? Well, hold on to that thought, because the philosopher that we're going to be talking about today, Arthur Schopenhauer, thinks that this is a really important question, and a large part of his philosophy is built upon the way that he answers it. This will probably be a fairly familiar theme for those of you who have been listening to Searching for it over the last few months. You know, back in December's episode, we looked at the antinatalists, who are the people that argue that life just isn't worth living. And a big part of their system of thought revolves around the inescapable cycle of desire or the hedonic treadmill, which is more or less the idea that our lives are constantly and totally marked by desire. We want something, we get it, and then we desire to keep on having that thing or to get something else. And that's not a very good thing for the antinatalists. And then in the last couple of episodes, we've looked at Buddhism and the same kind of idea that desiring things is what lies at the root of all of life suffering. So when Schopenhauer talks about desire, some of the conclusions he reached actually aren't too far from these kind of thoughts that we've been looking at recently. Although for those of you who aren't sold by the idea that desiring is essentially suffering, that desiring fancy cars and supermodels is what makes our lives feel unsatisfactory, don't worry, this is the last episode I'll be doing for a little while that's based on this kind of idea. But I think what makes Schopenhauer especially interesting are these bigger and more grandiose claims that he builds upon his thoughts about desire and suffering. And honestly, I think for a lot of people, there are definitely parts of Schopenhauer's philosophy that really resonate with the way that life feels, the way that it feels to be a person. It was a few years ago that I first came across Schopenhauer, and I remember thinking, wow, the way this guy writes, he has a way of putting across his ideas so poetically, And the things he's saying, I really felt like something clicked with the way he talked about life and the human condition. There's so much we could say about Schopenhauer. He's one of those rare philosophers who didn't just put up a handful of strong arguments in some super-specialised part of philosophy. He had something to say about so many different areas, metaphysics, ethics, aesthetics, and he created a whole framework through which to talk about philosophy and talk about our lives, and he linked all the different pieces together. So I won't talk about every little bit of Schopenhauer's philosophy. I mean, his most popular book is thousands of pages long, and I don't intend on making this a 10-part episode. But what I want to focus on here is what Schopenhauer has to say about the value of our lives. Why does he think that suffering is such an integral part of our lives? And how can we stop our suffering? Now, if we look at Schopenhauer, the man himself, first of all, though, yeah, he's probably the kind of guy who you'd expect to grow up to become this great pessimist philosopher. So just to take a look at his background, his start to life was not easy. He was born in 1788, and having grown up training to follow his father's footsteps as a merchant, he made a big U-turn at 17 after his father passed away, which I think was largely understood to have been from suicide. 
So rather than entering business, Schopenhauer decided he wanted to pursue a career in philosophy, and he said in typical Schopenhauer fashion, Life is an unpleasant business. I have resolved to spend mine reflecting on it. And his career didn't get off to a great start either. I mean, in fact, reading over his biography, the young Schopenhauer kind of reminded me of that bad luck Brian internet meme from a few years ago, which is the idea that whatever he does, it always finds a way of going wrong. I mean, look, so at the end of 1818, just 30 years old, Schopenhauer published what's probably become one of the most influential texts in the history of philosophy. It was called The World as Will and Representation. Einstein was really into it, Darwin referenced it in The Descent of Man, and he had a really big influence on the likes of Nietzsche and Wagner in Germany. But when he published it, and you see this with a few philosophers, literally no one cared. Really, not many people read his works at all until the last few years of his life. And in fact, just a year after he published it, so this is going back to 1819, he took his first lecturing position in the University of Berlin. And maybe this was a bit provocative in hindsight, he tabled all of his lectures to clash with the big German philosophy boss at the time, Hegel. And lo and behold, while Hegel lectures to hundreds, Schopenhauer's just written his seminal work that nobody read, and his lecture hall was almost empty. And just to top it off, nobody read his book, nobody attended his lectures. The next year, Schopenhauer lost a court battle where he was famously demanded to pay compensation to an older lady every year after he'd thrown her out of his apartment, literally, and beat her. So he was known to be a pretty bitter guy, but let's be fair, you've got to make a bit of a jump to get from having a sour personality and a bleak attitude to holding the philosophical worldview that life is suffering, happiness is an illusion, that it'd be better not to live at all. See, the conclusions Schopenhauer reached weren't just an expression of his mental state, even if they were a little bit. They were the culmination of an extraordinary philosophical framework, and he put in a lot of work to justify his arguments. I mentioned earlier that one of the big points that Schopenhauer really tries to hammer home is that desiring things leads us to suffer. Or actually, it's probably more accurate to say that to desire something is to suffer. But see, Schopenhauer goes much deeper than this, because when he's talking about desire, he's not just referencing the kinds of desires that humans have, even that animals have. He's referencing the giant concept right at the heart of his philosophy that ties in with more or less everything that he has to say. And broadly, this big claim that Schopenhauer makes is that he thinks he's discovered something integral to the fundamental nature of the universe. What he wants to show is what the universe really is at its core, and why that should matter to us. Now obviously, this sounds like a really ambitious argument from Schopenhauer here, but just to lay the groundwork really, in terms of what he has to say about the true nature of reality, I think the first thing that's worth mentioning, to provide a bit of context, is that in philosophy there's a really crucial distinction between the way that things appear to us, and the way that things really are. So there are a few different ways you can think about this, but without wanting to get sucked too far down the rabbit hole, one way to think about it is, whenever we experience the world, so you know, when you see, you smell, you hear the world around you, by the time we become conscious of our experience, our perceptions will have passed through all of these different filters in our brain. So you know, people talk about how children, for example, are able to see the world as it really is, because when they see something new, something they've never seen before, maybe they're seeing a cactus for the first time, they don't see it as a cactus, and they don't shape their experience in accordance with all the other cactuses they've seen and everything they've learned about cactuses. They see all the green lumpiness, maybe the spikes that we don't pay attention to, the dirt on which it grows, 
Whereas maybe we don't pay quite full attention to all the little details because it's much easier for us to just categorise the object as a cactus and box it away with all our other cactus experiences. Or if you want to take this further and make it a bit more abstract, take the concept quantity. So what we're talking about when we talk about quantity, we're talking about amounts and numbers, we're talking about how many instances of a certain thing there are. So if we're in a desert and we see one lone cactus in the distance, that forms an integral part of our experience, the oneness of the cactus, and we experience the landscape as one cactus. Or maybe we see a great wall of cactuses in the distance. In that case, again, quantity is colouring in the way we experience the world by showing us a plurality of cactuses, and we can distinguish between each of them. We see the boundaries between each one, and we can say, that's one cactus, that's another, and together, these are multiple cactuses. Or if for some reason we're kneeling down, I don't know why, maybe we're kneeling down right in front of a cactus and the cactus is all we can see. This time the concept of quantity filters our experience again by showing us the cactus not through the lens of unity or plurality. We see the cactus through the concept of totality. So the cactus becomes everything we see. We're not just seeing one cactus, we're not seeing multiple cactuses, all we see is cactus. Well, enough about the cactuses for now. The point is that whenever we experience anything, it's always through the concept of quantity. I mean, can you even conceive of what it would be like to see a cactus, but without our mind filtering it to us as either one cactus, multiple cactuses, or all cactus? No, it's impossible to conceive of what our experiences would be like if they were completely separate from the concept of quantity, if we weren't able to distinguish boundaries between different things. It literally doesn't make sense to us. It's not how we're built to see the world. So when we see the world, we don't know whether we're seeing the world as it really is behind the concepts and the categories that shape our experience. So the way the world appears to us might actually be something quite different to the world as it really is, if the way the world appears to us is shaped by all these different filters and concepts. Well, obviously, this raises a really big question, and anyone who's ever studied an intro to philosophy class will probably be really familiar with this point, that if we're built to see the world in certain ways and through certain concepts, how can we ever have knowledge of how the world really is? If we only ever see the world as it appears to us, how can we know what's really behind our experiences, what's really out there? Well, it was a philosopher called Immanuel Kant who formulated this distinction between the way the world appears and the way that the world really is that Schopenhauer is working with here. And Schopenhauer, and this is where his work starts really, he thought Kant made one really big mistake. Now, for sure, when we're looking at the world around us, we only ever see it as it appears to us, but there's one big exception, and that's ourselves. So when we look within ourselves, when we examine our own thoughts, our own feelings, we're able to see through this distinction between the way the world appears and the way it really is. Because, see, when we look within ourselves, we aren't limited by all of these different concepts. Our experiences don't have to pass through any filters. We see ourselves directly. And I don't mean we see ourselves directly when we're looking in a mirror. I mean when we're looking within ourselves. Our knowledge of our kind of inner states is immediate. And it doesn't have to pass through the same kind of filters that things like our sight and our smells do. And it's through looking within himself that Schopenhauer thinks he sees the true nature of reality, what the world is really about. For Schopenhauer, there's one underlying force, this kind of energy that underpins the whole of reality. And what Schopenhauer calls this force is will. 
When Schopenhauer looks within himself, what he sees is something that's actually really quite similar to the Buddhist notion of dukkha that we looked at in the last couple of episodes. So, you know, th this constant grasping towards something and the idea that we're constantly caught in this cycle of desire, satisfying our every desire, and then desiring a hundred other things, is what we spend our whole lives doing. It's what holds the steering wheel and directs everything we do. You know, we will to go to eat, we will to go to work, to come home, to see our friends. We will to go to sleep, and hey, when we wake up, we will to get up and do it all over again. I think another good word for what Schopenhauer is talking about here, the will, is I think you could say striving. So the idea that we're always striving towards something, we're always reaching, always trying for something else, for something more. And even when we get it, then we just move on to the next thing. The striving never stops. And there are so many ways that we see this in our lives, you know, there's the basic sense in which we're always desiring things, more things. But I think you can also speak about this in a kind of existential sense. I mean, there's an argument to be made that people need some kind of sense of meaning to strive towards. I mean, you've got religion that's always satisfied that craving for probably most of recorded history. And then for those agnostics and atheists out there, you often find this need to identify with something higher, maybe with some overarching ideal to direct our lives towards, like some kind of politics or ethics or maybe some existentialist theory. And to be completely honest, that's more or less the premise that this entire podcast is grounded upon. So to think about what this will feels like, remember at the beginning of this episode when I asked you to imagine what it feels like to desire something. Not to think about the thing you're desiring, but to think about the feeling of desire. Whether you're desiring things, you know, material things that you can attain today, or whether you're desiring something more abstract, like a sense of purpose or a meaning to life, that kind of feeling within, I think, is the same. That longing for something, that striving that keeps us moving step after step, even if we're not moving in any particular direction. This is what Schopenhauer sees when he looks within himself. This is what it feels like to will. One little thing I found interesting doing my research before this episode is, I read somewhere that Neil Cassidy was actually an avid reader of Schopenhauer. You know, remember the guy who Dean Moriarty from Kerouac's On the Road was based on from some of the earlier episodes of this podcast. Now, I found it helpful making this comparison in my head between the character of Dean and the will that Schopenhauer talks about, because, man, I can't think of a better embodiment of the will than Dean Moriarty. Honestly, I feel like you could take half the passages in On the Road and hold them up as an example of the will, but one of my favourites is that great exchange between Dean and Sal that goes, Sal, we gotta go and never stop going till we get there. Where are we going, man? I don't know, but we gotta go. I don't know, for me that kind of passage just paints a really poignant image of that kind of feeling to keep on going, we don't know where we're going, but we gotta get there. That feeling of just striving on forward, I think that sort of feeling is the kind of thing that Schopenhauer has in mind when he talks about the way that we experience the will. But remember, Schopenhauer isn't just saying that this is what it's like to be a person, to be a walking, talking, willing homo sapien on planet Earth. This is what Schopenhauer is saying the true nature of reality is all about. Because if we remove ourselves as individual people from the picture and move one step down the ladder, you see the same kind of thing happening on a species level. Just like within ourselves, you see entire species exhibit this will, this striving. Because, you know, with any kind of life, you never see stillness or apathy or a contentness with how things are. With any species, whether it be animal or plant-based, they're always seeking nutrients, seeking growth, willing to live, to succeed, to pass on their seed and to grow as a species. Is this kind of force, this energy that keeps species growing and developing, that drives evolution and this will to life and strife to grow? And I think this is an important clarification to make. This will that lies at the heart of life, at the heart of the universe, 
it's not always conscious, you know. Plants aren't always thinking, man, I really want to stick my roots into that puddle over there. I mean, for sure, we have the capacity to be consciously aware of the will and to desire things. But the will in itself, the actual will isn't conscious. And the will in itself isn't even directed at anything in particular. It's only in conscious creatures like ourselves does the will become conscious and directed towards a certain object. But it's this unconscious will, this blind striving that ultimately keeps the world in motion, and it's what keeps species moving forward and growing. And then finally, that leads us to the bottom step on the ladder, the sense in which the universe in its entirety, not just living things that walk the world, is all will. I think it's pretty widely recognised nowadays that will was probably a pretty bad choice of word from Schopenhauer, because the way that we understand will is, as, as I say, a kind of conscious desire that's directed towards something. So, you know, to consciously will for your team to score in a football match, for example. Whereas what Schopenhauer really meant by will was, as I say, this blind, undirected striving that underpins the universe. I mean, when the will manifests in ourselves as conscious beings, it often manifests as something like desire. But the will's more than just that, even within ourselves. It's that strife within us that's really applied wherever you look within yourself. So, yeah, if you take feelings like love, hope, fear, they're all embodiments of the will too. Because when you love someone, for example, you're grasping at them, you're striving towards them, you want them in some sense. So it's an example of will insofar as it's this kind of force that keeps on moving you towards something. And that's just how the will manifests in people. We've also talked about it at a species level. But the will also manifests in this blind and unconscious form everywhere we turn in the universe. So there's a beautiful passage by a philosopher called Brian McGee that I put on the recommended reading for this episode on the Searching For It website, where he says, It constitutes gravity, which is everywhere, and is everywhere the same. It forms the chicken in the egg and the child in the womb. It pushes up the plants, it sweeps along the winds and the tides and the currents, it crashes through the cataracts, it is the go in the running animal, the pull of magnetism, the attraction of electricity, the energy of thought. You know, once you feel the essence of the will, you see it manifest all around you. So when Schopenhauer's talking about the will, it's probably better to keep in mind something like blind force or blind energy. But as I say, for Schopenhauer, the will understood in that kind of way is what literally constitutes the whole of reality. So that's more or less the background to what Schopenhauer's trying to do here. And it's from this starting point that a lot of the rest of his philosophy gets going. Now, remember back to the beginning of the podcast when I asked you to think about what it feels like to desire something. Well, given that Schopenhauer is basically saying that the world in its inner nature is willing, and the desire is one way that the will manifests itself in human form, well, the way we feel about desire becomes really important. I mean, Schopenhauer is saying that the whole essence of our lives, what they're really about, is striving for things, endlessly grasping something and then something else. So it really matters whether or not this is a good thing. If we decide that living in a world of desire is actually a really good thing, then that's all very well, because that's the world we live in. But if it seems that desire, for whatever reason, isn't a very pleasant thing to go through, then we might be in for some trouble. And there's no twist in the story here. I think you know what's coming. As far as Schopenhauer is concerned, this sucks. For Schopenhauer, the way the will manifests in us causes us to lead terrible lives, and this for Schopenhauer is just an unspeakable tragedy. Now, let's be clear. Some people might have had a bad life and might be bitter because they failed to achieve something they really wanted. Maybe you've heard of someone who all they ever wanted was to find a partner and raise a family. 
but for whatever reason, lousy personality traits, or maybe just bad luck, they never found someone to spend the rest of their lives with. Now, in at least some respects, this person would have lived a bad life because their desires weren't fulfilled. They weren't able to achieve their great ambition to start a family. And there's probably a sense in which most people could say their lives haven't gone as well as they otherwise would have, in respect to the fact that they failed to achieve some kind of important desire. Like, maybe you're just a little bit salty, because you know you're a better singer than Bob Dylan ever was, but while he's up there selling records and living it up, you're just playing guitar to yourself in your bedroom. But the tragedy of unfulfilled desires isn't the point of what's going on here. Let's think instead of those people who get all they ever wanted. The kids are billionaire oligarchs who never have to work a day in their life and they spend their year cruising around Ibiza and sipping martinis in Dubai. See, if you ask Schopenhauer, life sucks for them too. I think to get to grips with why Schopenhauer thinks life sucks, regardless of whether you're dying of loneliness or partying it up in Ibiza, I'm simplifying his work here a bit, but there's kind of two main themes going on. First of all, when we're in this state of desiring something, we're in a bad state, it's not nice to desire things. And then secondly, most of our time is spent in this state, even if we're the heir to the oligarch's billion dollar fortune. So the first part of Schopenhauer's argument here, that desire feels bad, that it's a kind of suffering, this is a similar kind of insight to those given by the antinatalists and Buddhists, and one way of thinking about this is to ask, what does it actually mean to desire something? Well, if you're desiring something, essentially you're wanting something else, maybe some item for you to own, some more money, a nice car, or maybe you're just desiring to feel a certain way. Whatever it is you're desiring, what you're expressing in virtue of desiring this thing is that you're currently discontent with what you have. You have what you have, but it's not enough, so you want something else. But Schopenhauer actually goes a bit further than this. He doesn't just say that to desire is to express discontent. It's more than that. To desire something is actually to suffer. And the reason for this is, Schopenhauer thought a lot about the nature of suffering, what it is to suffer. And the definition he gives is that suffering is when the will is unable to achieve its goal. So just to clarify, as we said earlier, the will in itself doesn't have goals. But when the will manifests in us as something like desire, the desire is directed towards something like a Chinese takeaway or a fast car or whatever. So if the will becomes unable to attain that thing it's directed towards, that's suffering. Or, you know, if the will manifests as love, but we can't have the person we love, Again, that's suffering. And when you think about it, it's really not that crazy a definition of suffering. Think about any instance of suffering, any time you suffered recently, I'll, I'll let you think what that might be. Whatever it is, it seems like in some respect, when you're suffering, you're suffering because you want something, but you can't have it, or you haven't got it yet. Like, even if maybe you're in a lot of pain, well, of course you desire for the pain to stop, but it won't, so you suffer. Or you're being a bit dramatic, maybe, saying you're suffering at your desk at work because you really want to go home. Again, your suffering here consists in the fact that you want to go home, but you can't. So you're not getting what you're willing. So the idea here is that when we desire, but not just desire, this also applies to any manifestation of the will, like love, hate, hope, and all the rest. In virtue of the fact that we're desiring or striving towards something, we're suffering because we're longing for something or to be in some state that we don't have. So that's the first part of the argument, that to desire is to suffer. It's to be unhappy with the state you're currently in. But next, Schopenhauer needs to show that this state of being, of being in a state of desire, 
is our default state, whether we're the person dying alone or the heir to the oligarch's billion-dollar fortune. Well, as we've said, Schopenhauer is not saying that we can never get the things we desire. If the oligarch's heir was here with me, I'm sure they'd point out that they could buy just about whatever they want, whenever they want, and they're not even familiar with the concept of desiring things they can't have. Well, if Schopenhauer was here too, he'd probably want to say, so what? You want to buy some fancy car? Then what? You think you'll be happy? No chance. You buy the car. Then, hey, you're going to want to drive the car. Great another desire. Okay, so you fulfil that, and then what? You're going to want to go out for dinner. And guess what? That's a desire too, and you won't be happy until you've eaten. And cool, you'll be satisfied for a few minutes when you sit back in your chair and you rub your plump little belly, until you think, hmm, what now? I know, I fancy a drink, or if you're the heir of an oligarch, maybe something a little bit more illegal. And guess what? You're not going to be satisfied. You're going to be discontent until you've had that drink, or do whatever it is you want to do. And then you're going to want more. We could go on with this example forever, but the point is, whoever you are, having all the money in the world, all the power in the world even, it's not going to make you happy and it's not going to stop the tidal wave of desire. No matter who you are, the nature of desire is the same. You spend some indefinite period of time desiring something, you're briefly satisfied while there's nothing standing in the way, but this is only a temporary respite because before long you'll be striving after something else. I think broadly one way of looking at it is that for Schopenhauer, our natural state of being is in a state of desire, whereas our pleasures are only ever temporary. And in a similar vein, we feel things like pain, but we don't feel painlessness, and equally we feel bad things like fear, but we don't feel security. You know, we feel all the bad things in our life, but we don't tend to feel the good in such a strong way. They're often just the alleviation of the bad. You can make a similar point about hunger, but we're suffering when we're hungry, and sure, we might briefly enjoy the act of eating, but more or less straight away, the pleasure's over and we're back to reminiscing about our meal. We're looking forward to our next meal or desiring something else entirely. There's a great quote where Schopenhauer makes this point. He says, Happiness lies always in the future or else in the past, and the present may be compared to a small dark cloud driven by the wind over the sunny plain. In front of and behind the cloud, everything is bright. Only it itself always casts a shadow. Consequently, the present is always inadequate, but the future uncertain and the past irrecoverable. The point being that we spend our lives looking back on our past pleasures and hoping for future pleasures, and the present moment is always discontent, we never reach this elusive grand moment of satisfaction. The dark cloud is always above us, shielding the happiness. So when you look at it that way, on balance, we simply spend far more time suffering than we do satisfied. And why would we want to live such a life? So let's take what Schopenhauer is saying from a bird's eye perspective. As we've said, there's two big parts to his argument. Firstly, to desire is to suffer. And secondly, we spend most of our lives desiring. So, guess what? We spend most of our lives suffering. Now, if this is all clear, you might be beginning to understand why Schopenhauer described life as an unpleasant business. We might get the occasional respite from our suffering, maybe on the off chance that we're genuinely enjoying our state and we're not desiring something like for our pleasure to continue or the next thing to seek. But by and large, our lives, when examined closely and not through the biased lens of the optimist, are lives of suffering. So the picture Schopenhauer's painting here is a pessimistic one. It's a world of will, of constant strife, of constant suffering, and this is the world we've been born into. So the question that really matters then for Schopenhauer is what can we do about this? 
Maybe should we just grit our teeth and accept our fate? Or maybe we could tackle it head on in the kind of way that Camus spoke about. You know, with the whole imagery of Sisyphus pushing the boulder up the hill and reveling in his fate because that's all he can do. If we're going to be anti-natalists about this, maybe we might admit defeat and say, hey, I guess that's that. Life isn't worth living, so I sure as hell aren't going to bring any new kids into the world. Or, and this is definitely the closest to what Schopenhauer says we should do, maybe we should adopt the Buddhist mentality and, in some sense, take a step back from the world, stop clinging to things, craving for things, and just let it be. But it wouldn't be fair to reduce what Schopenhauer says down to something like the Eightfold Noble Path in Buddhism. Schopenhauer definitely has his own independent thoughts on how we should deal with the human condition, and I think it's the insights he gives that make it really worthwhile devoting a whole episode to Schopenhauer. So there's a few different paths Schopenhauer could have chosen to go down here. And first of all, as we looked at in the Camus episode, one way out when you realise that what the world has to offer isn't all that much is to go ahead with physical suicide. You can see why Schopenhauer might have ended up reaching this kind of conclusion, given that he literally says life isn't worth living, it'd be better never to have been born, if life is such a drag then why carry on? Well, the reason why Schopenhauer doesn't start a death cult and tell us all to commit suicide is for pretty similar reasons to Camus actually, that it won't solve the issue that's at the root of our suffering. For Camus, the big problem was the absurd, the idea that we inevitably long for meaning in a world devoid of meaning. The whole point of our existence, if there even is any, is out of our reach, so we can't find any purpose. Well, as we saw in the two earlier episodes on Camus, killing yourself won't overcome the absurd. It won't grant you any meaning. The universe is absurd regardless of whether we continue living or kill ourselves. So in that respect, killing yourselves is kind of like admitting defeat. Schopenhauer deals with suicide in a similar way. If we're going to consider killing ourselves because we can't handle the pointless, incessant striving of the will, that's not going to overcome the will. Remember, the will is literally the fabric of the universe. Everything that existed is in the state of perpetual motion, perpetual grasping, and this grasping is going to carry on way after our death. But we can say more than this. In actual fact, killing ourselves doesn't just fail to deal with the will. It actually affirms the will. It validates it. Because to kill ourselves in this context is essentially to say that we have a love for life and that we will to live but the life hasn't given us what we want. So suicide just doesn't defeat the problem at hand, it's the ultimate resignation of defeat. You see, if we're actually going to defeat the will, we need to find a way of weakening its grasp on us. And this is what Schopenhauer prescribes as the proper response to the will. To continue living, not to admit defeat and kill ourselves, but to overcome the will within ourselves. We need to find a way of continuing to live without being subject to this incessant striving, to find a way of living at peace with ourselves. You can definitely see in this general idea the comparisons with Buddhism. I mean, this is the kind of thing that the Buddha suggested to overcome Dukkha. We have to stop striving after things, just let them be, and live at peace with ourselves. And just as with Buddhism, there's a path to follow to reach this goal. And the first step for Schopenhauer is to see things as they really are. So just as Buddhism demands that we see the cycle of desire as being at the root of our suffering, Schopenhauer says that our first step is to have a great realisation. But for Schopenhauer, this insight is the idea that basically, everything is one. See, remember that for Schopenhauer, what we all essentially are, in our essence, is will. We're all just manifestations of this same force, this same will. So what we need to understand is that we are all the same in that respect, and that these concepts we have of ourselves and of other people, this distinction between the self and the other, 
is just an illusion. In reality, we're all just manifestations of the same force. And once we see that, a little bit like when we attain enlightenment within Buddhism, a great weight comes crashing down. This whole myth on which we base our lives, the myth of looking after number one and of specially protecting our own interests, becomes completely absurd. We stop assigning any kind of special value to our own interests because not only are we no more important than anyone else, but we're truly at one with the rest of the universe. We're all the same thing, so why give any special attention to ourselves? But it's at this point that we undergo another revelation. See, once we identify with the rest of the world, we come face to face with the striving and the suffering that colours in the rest of the universe. See, up to this point, we've only been talking about the will in relation to ourselves, how it makes me strive, how it makes me suffer, but we realise all of us are going through the same thing. We see the universe without any frills or illusions, we see it for what it really is, a cesspit of pointless strife and pointless suffering. As Schopenhauer says, if we were to conduct the most hardened and callous optimist through hospitals, infirmaries, operating theatres, through prisons, torture chambers and slave hovels, or battlefields into places of execution, if we were to open to him all of the dark abodes of misery where it shuns the gaze of cold curiosity, and finally were to allow him to glance into the dungeon of Ugolino, where prisoners starve to death, he too would certainly see in the end what kind of a world this is. And then he goes on to say, and if any listeners are thinking that this guy seems way too pessimistic and that life isn't all that bad, he's responding to you here when he says, I cannot withhold the statement that optimism, where it is not merely the thoughtless talk of those who harbour nothing but words under their shallow foreheads, seems to me to be not merely an absurd, but also a really wicked way of thinking, a bitter mockery of the most unspeakable sufferings of mankind. I think that for Schopenhauer, in a world of war, death, illness, where thousands of wild animals are being torn to pieces every moment, there's no excuse for keeping your positive hat, no excuse for the sheer amount of suffering that engulfs the entire world. And what's more is that there's no end goal, there's no ultimate point. All we're working towards is to sustain a race of humans who live for a short life, in the best scenario with not too much suffering and with a manageable degree of desire. But in the worst cases, I mean really think of the worst lives, they're marred by inconceivable levels of terror, of torture, of pain, and for absolutely no avail. If you're with Schopenhauer here, it's difficult to see human life as anything other than a tragedy. And as Schopenhauer says, a delusion seized by which everything living works with the utmost exertion of its strength for something that is of no value. But when we consider it more closely, we should find it also that it is rather a blind pressure, a tendency entirely without ground or motive. And once we've had this second great revelation where we truly see the horrors of the world and the pointlessness of it all, this is where Schopenhauer gives his original account of what we should do about this. And here we see something quite extraordinary, whereby our will turns away from itself in horror. Once we see the ghastliness of existence, how could we will to sustain it? How could we will for anything other than to be rid of it? As Schopenhauer says about this, the will now turns away from life. It shudders at the pleasures in which it recognises the affirmation of life. Man attains to the state of voluntary renunciation, resignation, true composure, and complete willlessness.
What's going on here is that the will is no longer able to validate itself. It recognises that it's the will itself at the root of all this pointless suffering. So rather than carrying on as it had before, manifesting as desire and grasping a thing after thing, the will turns away from life itself. And we as humans are left to continue on without the direction of the will, without this incessant driving forward in a state of willlessness. We realise that true happiness is unattainable, and that suffering is inevitable, so we free ourselves from this clinging to happiness, from the delusion that we exist in order to be happy. We realise that it's completely futile, so in a sense we give up. We're not trying to chase the carrot on the stick, and we essentially turn our backs on the carrot. We're not going to continue subjecting ourselves to a battle we'll never win, so we just stop willing. I think to understand what it's like to live apart from the will so completely, imagine someone, and I'm sure these kinds of cases really do exist, where they've been battered down so much over the years, they've faced who knows what kinds of horrors. Maybe they've lost just one too many loved ones, suffered one too many tragedies, or been tortured too horrendously. Imagine such a person who just couldn't keep up with the pressures anymore, and just buckled. Their sense of self collapsed, and for the rest of their days they just kind of staggered through, dead in the eyes, a shell of their former self, with no hope, no desire, just willlessness. It's not a very nice picture to paint, but strange as it seems, this is the kind of life that Schopenhauer is advocating when he recommends entering the state of willlessness. I mean, ideally we won't need to suffer one too many tragedies to enter this state. The idea is that we get here through the kind of enlightenments that we just spoke about, through realising that we're all truly one, and by comprehending the true extent of the suffering of the world, and by turning away from the will to life. But once we've done that, this is the kind of life Schopenhauer says we should be leading. We essentially realise that life is defined by suffering, and that we can avoid this suffering by minimising our desires, and we live apart from will, apart from desire entirely. In some respects, you could definitely make comparisons here with the kind of life Buddhism prescribes. And Schopenhauer also says that St. Francis and Jesus Christ are shining beacons of this attitude by living apart from desire, without any material wealth, just with a much deeper inner peace and tranquility. But you can't just wake up one morning and choose to stop desiring and overcome the will. There's a process, and I read a good analogy online by a professor called Tom Kearns, who pointed out the likeness between the way that Schopenhauer goes about this and also battling addiction. So, I mean, think about it. When you're addicted to something, like nicotine, you really crave that nicotine and you really need to smoke that cigarette. Give it a few hours and it gets harder and harder to resist that urge in your head. Now, if you want to overcome your addiction, you'll need to stop craving nicotine. And eventually, once that craving subsides, it's easy not to smoke. But it takes a lot of effort to get to that stage. And if you want your craving to subside, even just a little bit, you're going to need to resist smoking. And the longer you go without smoking, and the less you do smoke, the less you'll crave nicotine, and in the long run, the easier it'll be not to smoke. I think Schopenhauer's process of overcoming the will is making the same kind of point here. So his goal is the same, he wants to reduce craving. But instead of wanting to stop his craving for cigarettes, he wants to reduce his craving more generally. He wants to suppress the will. And how do you go about doing that? Well, you have to stop going after the objects of your will. You have to stop validating the will. So just like the smoker who stops smoking in order to stop craving, so that he can stop smoking in the long run, Schopenhauer's ideal person here doesn't let himself run after the objects of his desire. 
He lives in self-renunciation, rejecting the pleasures of life. He lives in a state of voluntary poverty. He's indifferent to the offerings of the world and not allowing himself any luxuries or any satisfactions. And the idea is that just as the craving of the smoker subsides as they stop smoking, as we stop going after the objects of our desire, our desires will also fall away. And eventually we find the only kind of peace attainable to us in a state of wildernessness. And Schopenhauer says on this idea that this is the ultimate goal and indeed the innermost nature of all virtue and holiness and is salvation from the world. Of course, we can't will ourselves to be in this final state because the whole idea is that we're overcoming the will altogether. We have to enter this state because we're truly beyond will, beyond care and beyond desire. And it's only by following this path of self-renunciation that Schopenhauer thinks we can reach salvation. I'd like to have ended this episode with a positive note, maybe by showing how, despite the picture he paints of life as suffering, Schopenhauer offers us a path to overcome the inevitable suffering and live meaningful, wholesome lives of love and transcendence. But I guess history has pigeonholed Schopenhauer as a pessimist philosopher for a reason. Because best case scenario, we live as an ascetic who literally doesn't care about anything, who has nothing to live for and who just gets by because he can't even will to end his life. But I guess, at least to the extent that you follow Schopenhauer in seeing life as an unpleasant business, that the will inevitably leads to suffering and that our only alternative is to leave the will behind altogether, well, I guess that's as good as it's going to get. As I mentioned earlier, you can definitely see that Schopenhauer is following the same kind of theme as the antinatalists that we looked at, and the Buddhists too, in that they all think our natural state is to suffer, and to overcome this state of suffering requires some kind of self-sacrifice, whether in terms of not reproducing to add to the number of suffering beings, or to reject clinging and attachment to things in the spirit of Buddhists, or to live in complete indifference as with Schopenhauer. I don't want this podcast to get too bleak, so I'll draw a line for now at the end of the pessimist philosophies, and try to explore some different attitudes towards life and our purpose in the coming episodes. Next month, on the first Monday of April, the 6th, we'll look at something quite a bit different. We'll look at some philosophical arguments that try to show that actually, in all likelihood, that we're living in some kind of simulation, and why we should care if we are. In the meantime, you can follow Searching for It on Facebook and Instagram, and I'll also be posting updates on my new Twitter page where you can follow me on 99LewisWilliams. If you want to offer your support to help keep the show running, you can find Searching for It's Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash searching for it. Or otherwise, stay tuned and you can listen to the next instalment on the 6th of April.